Hey everybody, it's Lori. And this is Matt. And it's another episode of Teacher Saves, Saves World. Why can't you be more like my stapler? Keeping my papers together. Why aren't you doing your part? Let my life fall apart. Wow, all right. Well, we might be a little rusty today. Yep. We might be because it has been, we're one day shy of a month since the last time we recorded an episode of our podcast. I can't, I actually cannot believe that. It's been yeah. one month. I mean, today is June 23rd mm-hmm. when we're recording this. my mom's birthday. Hey, Peggy. Happy birthday, mom. And I looked on our little, our little calendar in May 24th mm-hmm. was the last time that we recorded an episode. Yeah. And, you know, because of, you know, we started this whole project in, in the shutdown in pandemic land and it was an outlet for us. And it was a time where our kids activities were shut down. And so we had all this free time and we had this energy. And so we finally decided to, to, you know, venture out and do this thing. And so we started, we were just, we started at a sprint. We did. We were recording an episode every two to three days. Well, it felt so good to, to do something. You felt like you were doing something. Yeah. You know, if we can't teach and be in the classroom with our kids face to face, we can do and contribute this way. And it was also like, it, it was on our calendar and it made us feel, I don't know. It was exciting. It I mean, was very, I, mean it, I mean, it still is exciting. It still is exciting. But like, yeah, it was, it was, it was something new and fresh that really livened us up. Right. But here's the thing that happened when this is a weekly thing, a weekly show, our, our main episodes come out weekly on Mondays. And when you record two or three of them, sometimes four of them in a week, that puts you really far out. Yeah. Right. So that when, when we're sitting down to record, we are, you know, this, what we're talking about isn't going to come out for a while. And at first, when we first started doing this, hey, cool. I mean, we're just talking about general topics that apply that will always be relevant to parents and teachers of teenagers. Yeah. And it is recommended that you get a little ahead in case of oh, yeah. something happens right. and you're unable to record and right. you got a little padding. Yeah. But it felt like we almost got too far ahead. And then also... There's just so much going on. Oh my God. Right. So in the midst of all this, I mean, this started as just a a COVID thing, a a fight the virus thing, but this time has also really become a society thing. It's become an education thing. And then with the death of George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd, then we've had a racial injustice thing. I mean, there's just been this confluence of so many things and These are all things that apply to us directly or indirectly as parents and teachers of teenagers. Oh, absolutely. Right. And it just felt like we were so far ahead of ourselves and we didn't have any way, even now, even this episode that we're recording right now will not air for a few weeks. Yeah. I think July 13th. We're still a little ahead. July 13th. Yeah. We're still a little bit ahead but we just felt the need to sort of like put the brakes on a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Come back a little bit. And not that we're, we're not a daily 
radio program. We're not live. No. Right? So we're not coming to you daily. We're not news. But if we don't, I feel like this is just something we can't gloss over. No. We can't contribute in some way to the conversation. I would, I would, it would just bug me. Yeah. Right? To just sort of ignore something, to, to not talk about it, to not see if there's some way that we can contribute. Um, I mean, we went, we both got our master's in social justice, multicultural education. Yep. It was an awesome program. It wasn't just because, it was because something that we care about. Yeah. Something that we felt was important. Yep. And um, so we felt the need to sort of put the brakes on, kind of absorb, right? Absorb everything that's going on in the world right now. This is a really turbulent time. Yeah. You know, in our, in our history, in our nation's history, in our world's history, this is a worldwide thing that's happening right now. All of these things yes. are worldwide. And to go from the shutdown to George, George Floyd's murder and then the protests, like it just the energy, right. That was kind of kept in the houses. Right. And then this explosion of like, we got to do something. Mm-hmm. You really felt, um, I don't know. These protests are so powerful on so many levels. Yeah. And, and they're and, fueled right. by this. I think the sedentary nature we had been in for months. Yeah. And now boom, right. I'm out I'm with people. I'm with people that feel the same way I do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, um, I don't know. It's time for us to talk about it. Yeah. And um, we're going to, we're two um, slightly over middle-aged white people. We're going to fumble our way through this. Yeah. You know, we're, we, we don't profess to have any answers, let alone several, or we have some ideas. We have some things we think might work, might be of, of help to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And if we were in the classroom right now, we would be leading these discussions with the kids. I would. Yeah. You know, facilitating. Not that I would be the sage on the stage. It'd be facilitating the discussion in the classroom with the kids' voices. Because that's what they they don't. They have it on social media. Their voice, you know, their voice can be loud on social media. But those kind of conversations you can really have in a structured classroom can be really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. When an adult's kind of... I don't say orchestrating because you really want them to fly, but you're able to kind of kind of corral it if it gets too hot or inappropriate things mm-hmm. are said that aren't mm-hmm. that aren't moving the conversation forward right. that are offensive and people and these kids don't even know they're being offensive sometimes. Right. So I miss that. I miss tackling tough subjects with my students. Yes, and and you do a fantastic job of creating that safe environment. And today's essential question really kind of feeds into that, right? Because these conversations happening in the right environment are really important. And so our essential question today, we're going to visit a topic that I actually kind of did some uh, extensive reading on when I was uh, going through the master's program. It's what is stereotype threat? So in the midst of all this, this really kind of, it came back to me and I hadn't really thought about it for a while. And I went and I dug into some old papers and that I had written and um, pulled an old book off the shelf that I had read that we're going to talk about. And so that's where we're going to start. Yeah. We're going to start with this topic today. What is stereotype threat? But before we get there, we want to make sure that we give our little plugs. 
that you, you know, join the conversation with us. Go on to, you know, join us on social media. Teacher yeah, Saves World. First thing we'd like you to do is subscribe to the podcast. You can leave a review if you want, but to hit that subscribe button is the best way to know when the next one comes out automatically. Mm-hmm. And then our, yeah, our social, our social media presence is growing, which is really cool. And um, we've got Facebook page. And then on the Facebook page, you click group and you can join the group. And then we will, you know, that's a, all you have to do is uh, put your name in and then we will approve it. But that's a place where everybody can speak and talk and share. And then, of course, Twitter and Instagram, both Teacher Saves World. And we'd love to have everybody join. Come join us. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's get this show started. And we always start, in case we've forgotten, with If I Was Principal. Oh, yeah. So this week, Lori, you get to be principal. What do you got for us? This is great. Well, this is kind of poignant, right? Because we're welcoming a new principal this coming year to our school and he's and he's a new old he was our original principal at mission oak high school and um when pursued some other careers and has found himself back in tulare when our other principal's off to the coast to be a principal in her future dream town yeah and so now we are welcoming our principal back so i i think about that he has you know a different style than our our last one so but this little tip could work for any principal. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. If I were principal, the physical campus would play a very important role. And I would want to cover as many surfaces with murals as possible. Ooh. Okay. Now not to get too busy, because you you know, you can go on Pinterest and see a lot of crazy mural action going on in schools. Yeah. But you know, there's my my original thought on this was simply um, school spirit yeah. and gathering. Right. I thought, you know, you want to you want to make sure that you have your mascot displayed. You have got the beautiful colors. You have um, maybe portraits of the kids, and everywhere you look, you know, I am a hawk. I am a cougar. I am a tiger. You know, whatever your mascot is. Right. But as we were preparing for this episode, I also thought, what a cool way to incorporate different cultures art oh yeah so your through line totally. would be the colors mm-hmm. and the mascot and the positivity mm-hmm. but how neat to do it in different you know different displays of of our current students cultures right because that's that's actually i mean that's wow that's a huge part of the conversation that's going on right now is the imagery in our environment and the messages that it sends to the people Right. Yeah. Most notably right now, it has to do with, you know, uh, statues and other um, things that, uh, you know, honor maybe, uh, you know, Confederate. There's a whole thing with NASCAR. Right. With uh, the driver. I'm really sorry that I can't think of his name at the moment, but as a black driver in NASCAR, how uh, he wrote, you know, he had Black Lives Matter on his car. Yeah. NASCAR removed all Confederate imagery flags from the races. Um, and, you know, so that is a big topic right now, right? You know, statues to Confederate soldiers, uh, the naming of, of military bases after yeah. Confederate. I lived on um, one of those bases, Fort Bragg. Right. Right. And I mean, even up here, we're in, uh, you know, just uh, about an hour away from us is Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park. And it has the largest living things in the world. These big, gigantic, awesome trees. Well, 
there's a general lead tree, mm-hmm. right? And so just in today's paper, today's local paper, they, you know, said they, they removed any sort of signage referring to general Lee. And so uh, this is very topical, right? I mean, we got to think about this, not just we as teachers think about the images that we put in our classrooms yes, and the messages yes. that they send, right? Do we, you know, and, and this has been a discussion like in textbooks when everybody used textbooks, right? The, the pictures that were in the textbooks and the, and the messages that, that they send. Yeah. But true, even, you know, we can go just a school spirit way with this, or we could, we could go something further. Yeah. And then, and then it becomes like a cultural norm on your campus. It's not like Black History Month or Cinco de Mayo where you're, you know, and we have wonderful celebrations on our campus in the center campus on Dia de los Muertos and all those kinds of, you know, very important holidays for our kids. But what if it was just in the fabric of what we did? Mm -hmm. We never thought of doing something one way when there's so many ways that different cultures express themselves in the style. And um, so I thought that was... I know these things cost money, but you know, if I was principal is a nice esoteric way to yeah, just get it, ideas across. And you know, uh, we're going to get to this, you know, towards the end of our show, but one of the mitigating, one of the ways to sort of mitigate the effects of stereotype threat, which we haven't even talked about yet, but is through the valuing of diversity and the imagery, the way that you choose to decorate your campus can be a way for you to value diversity. Yeah. And not even like take it one step further valuing, but you need to mm-hmm. like, so not just valuing it. It's a need. Like it's, we need your culture. Mm-hmm. We need your voice. We need you to share how you do things because right. it makes us all better. Right. Um, yeah, that's cool. I like that idea. I mean, I, I hadn't even thought about that. How, you know, murals are mostly the school spirit thing. The name of the school, the yeah. mascot, the colors. And this is something that we've talked about for a long time because we work on a relatively new campus that is fairly mural free. Yeah. Right? And yeah. and and when the school was built, when the school was designed and constructed, the way I was told, the school colors had not been determined yet. No. So our school has mostly sort of like this, you know, beige and burnt orange kind of colors. And then our school colors turned out to be purple and black. I know. Yeah. They matched our colors with the architecture. They went with like a muted mission. Yes. Color scheme. It's a beautiful campus. I mean, right? it looks really nice. Yeah. It's gorgeous, yeah. but it has nothing to do with, right. With our colors. And then they picked purple and black, which looks so sharp on everything, but we're, 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 we need more of it on our yeah. campus. So we've just recently uh, started to get some murals. Yeah. We just got our big first one. Oh, and everybody freaked out over it because it's yeah. just like gorgeous. Yeah. Like, why didn't we do this years ago? Yeah. You know, because it's so expensive. Why are they so expensive? I don't know. I mean, and it's not even like it took the guy like a week. Remember yeah. how fast it went up? And it's huge. It's gigantic. Yeah. Just as big hawks. Yeah. But it's beautiful. Right. You know, so we could even do uh, quotes from like leaders from different countries. Mm-hmm. We could do like in the English wing. I've often seen like on the stairs, they'll do the spine of a book. Um, they paint it onto the stairs. Oh, like stacks of books. On yeah. That? And you could do different, you know, multicultural authors right. um, of classics. And 
and all kinds of stuff. I just think it would be really dynamic. Well, I think it would. For kids to just see that. Right. Those images all over. Because, you know, if you've ever been to a town or, or you know, this really diverse um, area and they, they really commit to the murals and it's really cool. It's yeah. very dynamic. Yeah. You feel like you're in a movie or I don't know. You're just in a living art museum. Right. Maybe there could be a something, some sort of project where artists come together because they do this in, 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 in towns. Right? I mean, they do this to, you know, uh, there's like a, oh, there's probably like an arts committee, right? Like a public works art committee and they maybe, you know, gather some artists together and they, you know, decorate the downtown or some old buildings kind of mm -hmm. bring life into an area, but they do it in a way that brings not just the, you know, the vibrancy of the art, but the messages and the inclusivity and all of these things. And why couldn't we do that at school too? I know. Right. To, to have the same impact just from a aesthetic, right. To, to beautify. Yeah. But also to, to affect the soul. Yeah. You know, like in I a way where. I belong here. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. Right. Where, where these kids are walking onto a campus where the imagery says, you're right. You belong here. Mm -hmm. You are valued here. Your, um, your grandmother is your, valued here. Yeah. You're needed here yep. to contribute yep. what you can to, to this whole thing. So, um, that's a, that's a really good idea. I think that could be big. Let's get the paintbrushes out. Let's do it. Cause how know. hard can it be? Just <laughs> kidding. I know how hard it is. Uh, One of my best friends, Harmony is a muralist. <laughs> yeah, It's hard. It is. But that's why we save it for the artists. That's right. Let's get them to work. That's right. We just talk. We'll supply the paint <laughs> and I'll bring some cold waters <laughs> and some, some Nutri-Green bars to keep them going throughout the day. Yeah. But that's about it. All right. Good one. Thank All right. You. Let's, let's get onto it. So stereotype threats. What is stereotype threat? So as we were thinking of, um, you know, kind of what to, to talk about. Um, this came up and I, you know, most of what we're going to talk about today comes from a book that I would really highly suggest. It's called Whistling Vivaldi, How Stereotypes Affect Us and What We Can Do by Claude M. Steele. And he's kind of the leader. If you were just to Google Claude Steele, you can go to claudesteele.com. Um, he is a uh, pretty smart dude. He is a psychologist, social psychologist, uh, professor of psychology at Stanford, uh, former provost at Columbia and UC Berkeley. No big deal. Yeah, just a few just places. A just a lame couple little small little CV dinky there. colleges. <laughs> um, and he was kind of the leader uh, in this, uh, you know, discovering, not just discovering, but also how does it impact uh, mostly school performance? So that's yeah. what he was really looking at as an educator himself. He was looking at stereotype threat and how did it impact uh, student outcomes? And so if you read this book, Whistling Vivaldi, or if you feel like you need something to read to kind of go a little more in depth, I highly, highly encourage you to pick up this book. It was written in 2010 and uh, it's a really good, uh, easy read, great, you know, um, research in there and just uh, an easy style. Are you going to talk about why it's called Whistling Vivaldi? Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, think that's really fascinating. It's a, it's a really great story. So uh, this guy, this um, uh, 
he was a, he was going to, he was a journalist, right? He was going to school in Chicago mm-hmm. and he's a pretty big black dude. And, and, and Chicago has the South side of Chicago has not the greatest reputation, right? For, you know, uh, if you just watch the news and your idea our our stereotypical ideas of Chicago mm-hmm. uh, are not great. And right? young black males. Yes, in particular. And so he found as he was walking down the street that, you know, uh, if he were to encounter, you know, uh, a white couple or, you know, why, you know, that a they, woman, uh, yeah, they would react in, you know, they would, they would hold hands. They would move to the other side of the street. They would clutch their purse, you know, all of these kinds of activities. And he was, he was observing this and he was a, I think he was a graduate student. Yeah. Right. He's in grad school at, at university of Chicago, which is again, no slouch of a college. Mm-hmm. And, but he had a particular skill and that was of whistling. He was really good at whistling. And he found simply by whistling like Beatles tunes and, and Vivaldi classical music that that sent a message that I was, I was not what you're thinking. It's so bizarre to me. Right? I am not the stereotypical yeah. young black male that you are thinking of. Like he actually saw people become at ease. Yes. Simply by whistling Vivaldi. Which wasn't a stereotype of his... Right. Right. It, Outer shell. It broke the stereotype. Oh, this guy's whistling classical music. Or the Beatles. So he must be okay. Right. Yeah. Same, so that was, Same guy. Yeah. Great uh, little anecdote there. Right. So to kind of name the book. Kind of sets the tone. It does. So let's just start with a definition. What is stereotype threat? So, uh, Stereotype threat is an identity contingency. So what are identity contingencies? They are the things that you have to deal with in a situation because you have a given social identity. We all have them. They come with age, race, political affiliation, sexual orientation, level of health, you name it. Okay, we all have some sort of social identity. Contingencies are circumstances that you have to deal with to get what you want or need. And stereotype threat is a particular type of identity contingency where an individual is in a situation and just one misstep could reduce them to their negative stereotype. It's a diffuse threat. Mm. That means it's persistent. It's everywhere. It's not, it's never ending. And it's preoccupying, and you use this analogy, like a snake loose in the house. Oh, it's right? exhausting, that image. It's, it, it, just the tension that you have. On right? Guard. Just think, there is, a, there is a deadly venomous snake oh. loose in the house. I can't see it, but I can't relax either. Yeah. Right? And this is the kind of effect that stereotype threat has. Um, it's a diffuse threat that can negatively impact intellectual performance, behaviors, and physiology. Having to perform and disprove a stereotype threat, and this is again another analogy he used, is a Sisyphean task, like Sisyphus, the, um, you know, from Greek mythology that, you know, Zeus doomed him to Hades to roll a boulder up and it would always, as soon as it got to the top, would roll back to the bottom and roll it up and, and, and roll back down to the bottom. That'd be so annoying. Yeah. So stereotype threat is when you are in a situation and you feel like, man, 
I, I belong to a certain group that has a certain identity, a certain stereotype. And I, if I make a mistake, if I, if I don't perform beyond my stereotype, that I'm going to prove my stereotype. I'm going to become my stereotype. Yeah. And his focus was on academic performance and how, you know, groups that were typically um, seen as, you know, underperforming in school were oftentimes no less capable. They are no less capable intellectually, brain power wise than other groups but this thought, right, this, and this, this applies to females, it, it applies to minority groups, all types of groups, that if I'm simultaneously trying to perform and fight off the stereotype, that it was this, this, this diffuse threat, right? It was like the snake in the, in the room. Like having, to, having the freedom to focus while having this threat, this, like, just imagine, just take the analogy at it, at its most, you know, uh, uh, concrete. Imagine you are forced to take a test in a room where there is a venomous snake, snake loose in the room. Yeah. How are you going to perform as well as you could on the test than if there wasn't a snake in the room? Yeah. No. Well, I'm seeing it as like you're pulled in two different directions. So if I'm if I'm put in a stressful situation, like a testing situation, maybe a job interview, maybe a party where mm -hmm. I, I don't know a lot of people and I'm introducing myself, there's some anxiety with that anyway of putting my best foot forward. Now, that's one arrow in one direction. So the other arrow in the other direction, if I'm part of a stereo, stereotyped group, which I am, I'm a woman, yeah. um, now I've got to worry that not only am I impressing and putting my best face forward, but I'm not saying something that will make me look weak or um, passive or like will put me right back in, oh, well, she's a girl. Right. So it's two things at the same time. Right. And that's exhausting. And you're like just one step away from you just mm -hmm. get a little comfortable to have a glass of wine. Right. And all of a sudden maybe you're, you're um, you know, like growing up in Hawaii, I had friends that had really thick pigeon accents. Mm -hmm. And when they're home with tutu and aunties and whatnot and having a good time, they're going to speak pigeon. But if they're going out for a job interview, they're going to kind of code switch. I don't know if they still use that terminology. Mm -hmm. And they're going to, like we'd say in Hawaii, be, sound a little more howly, right? A little more white. Right. And, but it's very easy to slip back into pigeon because that's how they were raised. And that's kind of their comfort point. Mm -hmm. But man, that is exhausting. Right. Yeah. And... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let some parts of the book kind of uh, speak much more eloquently than, than I can. And I want to start off with this concept of observer's bias. And I'm going to turn to a certain page in the book here. This was a great analogy. I wrote down the page. Oh, wrong. 44. So observers bias where we you know as observers from the outside we try to explain why behaviors are happening okay so i want you to think of that idea observers bias where an observer tries to explain something that is happening and how we probably all fall into this trap at some point so listen to this little analogy here in 1978 when i lived in seattle the seattle supersonics came within one game of winning the nba championship the next year, they won. 
Their ascent to glory followed a long period of mediocrity. The 1978 season, in fact, began in mediocrity. Five wins and 17 losses during the opening weeks of the season. Then the Sonics front office fired the coach and hired a new one, a young Lenny Wilkins, who had been a player coach with the team several years earlier. No player changes, just Wilkins. Instantly, the team began to win 42 season victories and only 18 losses under Wilkins. The regular season ended with a 47 and 35 record before the Sonics lost the NBA title title by just six points in the final seconds of the seventh game of the championship series. A single personnel change, the addition of Wilkins, and the pieces of the team came together. What's interesting here is how the team was written about before and after its turnaround. Before the turnaround, the local sports writers described player characteristics in the worst terms. The point guard could pass okay, but couldn't drive to the basket. The strong forward shot from too far out and missed easy rebounds under the basket. The center had too little mobility and couldn't get mid-range shots. The sports writers were observers. To make sense of things, they used what was in their line of vision, the players and their characteristics, and they had losses to explain. Sensibly, they stressed negative player deficiencies. With a coaching change, the Sonics changed. Now the sports writers had to explain winning, not losing. Their player characterizations changed. They valorized the same players they had derided a month earlier. The players' weaknesses became their strengths. The point guard's poor driving ability became a testament to his brilliance as a floor general. The strong forward's lack of rebounding was a a minor cost of his beautiful outside shot. Hmm. And the center's immobility made him a rock of stability under the basket. By the time the team reached the finals, the sports writers saw genius in every position. Explanations of underachievement by minority and women students are under the same constraints, constraints as explanations of the early 1978 Sonics. Almost invariably, they take an observer's perspective, and they are trying to explain poor performance, not success. Under these constraints, student deficiencies make sense as causes of these troubles, just as player deficiencies made sense as causes of the troubles of the early 1978 Sonics. There was then like a specter hanging over our research, a long-standing tradition of how to explain the psychology of poor achievement among disadvantaged minorities and women. Mm. Wow. I thought that was super, you know, and I know, I, I know that I can be guilty of this, right? And how we look, how we label things, yeah. how we look at things. And we had an, an instant just just recently at our at our school and i want to credit um one of our ap's luis he really worked with our our el population right mm-hmm. our english learners and this population is traditionally labeled and seen by their deficiencies right oh absolutely and he wanted to change how we referred to them. Yes. And he came up with a term. I don't know if he came up with it or he found it somewhere. 
but his term was he stopped referring to them as English learners and started to referring to them as emerging bilinguals. Yeah. So it went from, remember, ESL was English as a second language. Right. That's the term of old. Mm -hmm. Then it went to ELL, English language Language learner, Mm -hmm. a little bit more positive. Right. And he wanted to stop. He really wanted to flip it to be positive because it is. Right. Right. If you're bilingual. Right. In California, especially, especially if it's Spanish, English. Oh, my God. Right. You know, the opportunities for you. And wanted to change it to EB, Emerging Bilingual. And I thought that was brilliant. I, it was huge. Like, I, I really, I really, t- like, when he said that, I could feel a shift in my head. Me too. Right? I, I can feel it. I could feel like, wow, you are right. Uh, I am not bilingual. And by your, just by changing that terminology, they were something they had more ability than I have, Yes. right? So they went from being a learner of a language that I have proficiency in, which means that I have, you know, you know, dominion over. I, I am of, of greater value because I know English and you don't. But when they were seen as emerging bilinguals, they already have mastery of this one language and they're mastering, they're developing mastery in a second. I was like, yeah, wow, that, I'm, I'm now behind them. That's huge. And just what that could mean to to a mindset, right? To mm-hmm. to how a how a person feels is labeled is labeled is yeah. how we label how we think of them, yeah. How we describe them, yeah. Based on what we're looking at. So it's seemingly small, mm-hmm. but but not. No. And 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 it's all these small things. If you you know, and that's kind of what's what's going on right now in the world, right? Is these statues that have been up forever, you know, that the protesters are pulling down. And there's, right. there's many thoughts on that from different people about how mm-hmm. it's being done and whatnot. But, but, you know, if you do erect a statue of somebody uh, and they were bad to your people, right. that sucks. Yeah, That's another message to you that you are less than. Mm-hmm. And this um, TED talk I watched was a professor in, Maryland, it was that on a TEDx talk. He talked to, he's a black man, had two, has two black daughters, elementary school age, and he just gave a real quick story about breakfast, and he had pulled out some Kellogg's corn pops and filled the girls' bowls, and they were all eating breakfast together, and he's all, and he, you know, on breakfast cereal, the back of the box always has, like, an activity or something to engage children. Right, right. So it had kind of like a, one of those really busy, busy pictures, and you're supposed to find, you know, find the apple, find the funny things, find the different little things and all these little corn pop characters. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom of the box, there was a little brown character and he had like a baseball cap on to the side and he was wearing like denim and he was a manual labor. He had some kind of big, like a big mop or floor machine, you know, polish your floor. And it kind of like a sour look on his face. Mm -hmm. And that was the only person of color on the back of that box mm-hmm. and everybody else is having a great time. And he's like, you know, I mean, this is just your kid's breakfast cereal, but I'm right. a black man. I got two black daughters and the only person of color that looks like us as a, you know, is a miserable low wage worker cleaning right. up after everybody else. Right. I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. We cannot do that anymore. 
Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. This is not an easy thing to talk about, right? And and um, these are not easy easy things to like be just honest, observant, open minded. Um, people tend to get defensive. Uh, consider you know uh, these things to be historical in nature, right? And what's what's wrong with that? You're you're trying to rewrite history. You know that's one of the arguments, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I try to, I try to stay open-minded and I try to really understand both sides. I, I am by chance a Libra, right? I'm the scale. Scales. I'm the scales. And I yeah, really always are. try to stay balanced and, and understand both sides. And, and as much as I think I know both sides, there are times when I just get hit over the head with my own bias, right? Lu, Luis coming with the term emerging bilingual instantly made me think like, totally. Yes. I was, I was looking at these students through a deficient lens. Yes. They were not as, um, you know, proficient with the English language as the rest of our society. They are deficient, right? Yeah. But instead, they were stronger. They, they had proficiency in one, and they were getting a second language. Well, I know we catch ourselves all the time because, you know, we've been teaching 20 years. You would think there's no bias in us at all. We're, we're, you know, we've, we've taught in public schools, we've taught in private schools, you know, kids are kids. Um, but every once in a while, right. I'll, I'll, I'll know that my bias is there. Like, for example, you have a new crop of kids in the fall, you know, you're a few weeks into instruction and maybe one of the boys says something and in your head, you're like, God, he's actually really smart. And I'll be like, wait, Lori, why did you why did you say he's actually really smart? Cause he right. was wearing kind of right. like sagging pants and mm-hmm. had a look right. about him. He's so eloquent. Oh, you said that so eloquently. That's yeah. another one that you hear kind of tossed around. I remember we, yeah. if, if, if you're ever in the Los Angeles area and, and restrictions are lifted because you wouldn't be able to do this now, I highly encourage you to go to the museum of tolerance. Oh man. We were, uh, we were very lucky. Lori and I, we, when we were going through our, our initial credential programs, we were at Long Beach State. Go Beach. Go Beach. And um, at that time, Erin Gruel was a, uh, she was on faculty there, right? Erin yeah. Gruel from- Adjunct. What was the book? She did Free, Freedom Writers. Freedom Writers. And they had just cast the film. Like they were just right. doing the, they were just moving into production. And so she was an adjunct faculty. Right. And she had been a high school teacher in, in Long Beach and, uh, you know, worked with these kids and wrote this book and they made it into a movie. And she was an adjunct professor at Long Beach State while we were there. And she took a group of us to the Museum of Tolerance. And it was part of an educator's program. And <sighs> Museum of Tolerance, um, it's a, uh, I mean, it's a museum. And it's an important museum and it's a historical museum and it is, it is not an easy museum. Right. No. And I remember that there's one point in the, in the tour where there are two doors that, and then you are, you know, the, the, the leader, what would you call them? The docent, yeah. whatever, um, you know, says, okay, yeah, tour guide, you're, you know, now it's time to go forward and, you know, pick one of these two doors to go through. And one door says, everybody who has bias go through these doors. If you don't have any bias, go through these doors. And I don't remember exactly how they handled it because it was a long time ago, but essentially the door 
that says anybody that has, you know, no bias, those doors don't even work. I think they were locked. They were locked. They, right, they, you they could don't, not go through They them. don't even open. <laughs> it's all the teachers like, well, I yeah. have no bias. Yeah. I'm an educator. And, Be, eh. Yeah. Because essentially we, we all do. Yeah. Right? We all do. Yeah. And, and I was just reminded of this again. So, you know, so, you know, soon after, or, you know, I don't know, somewhat recently when the protests are taking place and, uh, I hear somewhere in the background about Dave Chappelle does this 846 monologue. And I hear it in the background and I don't really think much about it. I, I know who Dave Chappelle is. I, I, I can't say I'm like a huge Dave Chappelle fan. I, uh, I've seen him in some movies. I've Saturday Night Live. I've seen him some stand up, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But I, you know, I'm not like a, a big, you know, uh, follower of Dave Chappelle. I'm on YouTube one day and I come across, I'm just kind of scrolling and it's on there. So I watch it. And I, I, not knowing what to expect, I didn't know I didn't know what it was. And so I I watched this 846 uh, by Dave Chappelle, and I encourage you to to watch it. It's um, it could be you know crude and crass at times, but I was uh, I was I was on the like I was on the verge of tears like multiple times watching it, just feeling feeling this black man express in ways that I, I thought I was cool, right? I thought I understood. I thought whatever, but what was, what he was talking about and, and how this, how everything impacted him and the way that he expressed it, um, again, was just like, wow, like I, okay. I, you know, I have a lot to, I have a lot, a lot to learn. I, you know, I. And that's the way we should be approaching everything right mm -hmm. now is I have a lot to learn. I don't know, you know, we're being kind of have images just hitting us at, at all angles on our phone, on the news, on the, you know, our kids are showing us videos. We have a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's powerful. And everybody's always lauded him as like a, a genius, like a, you know, like celebrity celebrities and the like that he's and, and now I kind of get it yeah when I was listening and over I, his shoulder, uh, he's uh, brilliant he is and I think um I I need to rewatch it because I went into it like just I, I didn't know right I didn't know what to expect and I didn't know what it was about necessarily and I I get the I get the idea that I don't think he meant to really go where he went right this was just I I think he he did intend to do a set of comedy and felt the need to talk. Yeah. At one point, remember he's like, I know y'all came here for comedy. Sorry. Uh, or yeah. he, he makes a reference to it. Right. And, but it was riveting. I'm, I'm nobody uh, would. Yeah. And he was still at points funny. Yes. But like the genuine, like how much this hurts. Yes. And has been hurting for decades and decades and decades and yeah, generations. That's what I really got. Yeah. It's like there he's exhausted. Yeah. His fellow people are exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let me go back to the book and I think this might actually kind of segue in into that. Um, so uh, this is from the chapter called the mind on stereotype threat. And so I'm going to pull just a few sections from a couple pages here and kind of string them together, but you can get it to start to 
get a feel for how the how stereotype threat over time, this pervasive, the snake in the room, can impact um, the person feeling the threat. So he goes, a strong working consensus as to how stereotype threat affects us is emerging. It's this. Stereotype and identity threats, these contingencies of identity, increase vigilance toward possible threat and bad consequences in the social environment, which diverts attention and mental capacity away from the task at hand, which worsens performance and general functioning, all of which further exacerbates anxiety, which further intensifies the vigilance for threat and the diversion of attention. And if the threat is part of an ongoing situation in their lives, part of their ongoing experience in a workplace, for example, in a college major, in a relationship, in a school, then these reactions can become ongoing, chronic contingencies of their identity. If people are under threats from stereotypes or other identity contingencies for long periods, they may pay a tax. The persistent extra pressure may undermine their sense of well-being and happiness, as well as contribute to health problems caused by prolonged exposure to the physiological effects of the threat. Mm. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about living with a snake in the room. Yeah. Forever. How do you focus enough to not be blocked from your goals and your dreams. Because you have to keep, right? Right. Keeping that snake at bay. How are you ever going to be free to give the mental focus and energy towards advancement when you always are looking over your shoulder? Yeah. There's that, that pervasive sense of like, where is it? Right? That if I, if I am the least bit non-vigilant, if I stop... If I stop looking for it, if I stop paying attention, then it's going to get me. And that's going to, and just, I'm feeling tense right now just thinking about it. Yeah. Right? And just imagine living with that tension constantly, right? Let alone trying to perform in school or at a workplace. You know, I'm watching The Wire on HBO. And it's, you know, it's an old show. It's, there's five seasons of it and, there's a, they really, last couple seasons, they focus on the kids on the corner. So these are kind of the up and coming, you know, drug runners and, and they don't go to school, mm-hmm. you know, and they're young. And this one boy um, who's super, super smart, you know, he just, there, there's a man that's opened up a boxing studio in the neighborhood trying to get these kids on track. And he just real, he's very smart in school, but just can't stay with it. And he just asked real, you know, real, real plainly, you know, how do I get from here to there? Like to him, like living a good life. And, um, he's like, I wish I could tell you, you just got to keep trying. Yeah. You know, everything, everything's a door slammed in his face all the time. He wants a real job, but he just, he walks into the room and he's a black teenage boy and Mm -hmm. he's not welcome. Yeah. Even though everything in his being wants to be in another place. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that default setting just keeps holding you back, sucking you back. I know this is just fictional, but the show has been kind of um, praised for how realistic um, the writers took the subject matter. All right. So 
you know, I think one of the things that we always aim to do is what do we do about it? Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think that we, what do we do? That's kind of what we, how we approach this show. That's how we approach our lives. It's one thing to understand. It's another, you know, it's one thing to believe. It's an, it's one thing to be compassionate. It's one thing to, to have empathy, but then what are you going to do? Yeah. What's the action? What's the action you can take? So, you know, like we talked about with us doing the show, this is one thing that we're, we're trying to do. Right. Yeah. But there are things that on that we can all do. And if you are, you know, particularly if you are a teacher working with minority students or any type of student that might have feel some sort of stereotype threat. Um, there are some things that these are research based things um, that Claude Steele and, and others that have researched this have come up with. And uh, so here are some things. Um, one is growth mindset lessons, you know, Carol Dweck, she's, she's Stanford and he's at Stanford. So, you know, there's a, there's a relationship there, but they found that, you know, helping students to understand, you know, cause a lot of this, the stereotype threat results in a fixed mindset, this belief that I am less than that I am what yeah. I am. Right. And I'm unchangeable, but, but the, the growth mindset, and if you're not sure what that is, we did an episode on growth mindset. If you want to look it up, just Google growth mindset. But it's the idea that we can change through effort. The brain is malleable. Intelligence is, is, is plastic. It can change, right? And so simply, you know, investing some time in helping students to understand the growth mindset, that we can change our intelligence, that we are all capable of changing our intelligence through, through effort, um, that can help mitigate some of the threats of, of stereotype threat. Yeah. Um, self-affirmation exercises. These were brief writing assignments about personally held values. So simply, and I actually did this, uh, once I, uh, I wrote a whole unit with some of this stuff, uh, as part of my, my master's program. And I inserted some of these activities and simply occasionally having students write about things that are of value to them, which just sends the message that, that you are valued. Yep. Right. You are part of this diverse classroom, you, you know, and, and getting them to write about things that are important to them. Yeah. Because, you know, in this environment, they might not see themselves anywhere in it. Mm -hmm. And anything that we're learning or being taught or, or any of the images in the textbook or, you know, posters on the wall, but yeah. I mean, taking the time to say, what do you value? Yeah. I have one writing assignment started the year. It's called personal artifact. Mm hmm. And it's like a kind of an, a young adult show and tell. They bring something from home. And it's anything from rosaries to baby blankets to a candle to a picture to, you know, and, and it really, it really kind of gels us together because they get emotional, yeah. of course, right? And, and um, but they're bringing a piece of themselves into the classroom right at the start. And then all of a sudden the, the, the girl that looks like, you know, a tough thug is, is crying. She has like a stuffed bunny from a, a baby sister that died mm -hmm. when she was one. I mean, it just softens. It's like, Hey, we are all feeling, thinking, loving humans. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good, really good one. Yeah. Self-affirmation exercises. That's good. Uh, another one is increasing minority group representation. There's really not much. I mean, you can do about this as far as like, uh, I guess maybe they've tried to do that with like busing issues. I don't know. Um, but this can be accomplished through like 
you know, the materials on your walls or, mm -hmm. or the materials you use, the videos you show, your, your physical environment, you know, including, you know, uh, successful representations, right, of, of the different, you know, minority, the groups in your classroom, the yeah. students that you have, sending the message right, that there's a critical mass out there, that you are not alone, that, that there um, are positive role models um, that are valued. Yeah. And so finding ways to... I could do better with that one. Yeah. Well, you're going to do some murals. That's right. <laughs> I've been sharing a classroom in my defense, but, but yeah. as far as like, I have a lot of like my stuff I like, but, yeah. you know, do I need a Rocky Horror Picture Show poster? Like, mm -hmm. not really. <laughs> it's fun though. it is kind of fun yeah well wait you know, i can share the space right and there are other groups of that would you know feel valued by that poster that's right you know uh speaking of valuing uh, valuing diversity right making that a, a a core mission a core you know uh sort of guiding principle of your institution of your classroom of your school that you know, not this colorblindness, no. right? Not this like, hey, we treat everybody. No. We actually value you, your background, you know, what you bring to this. You are an important voice yep. um, in our culture. And we need to hear it. Mm -hmm. we, need to, we need room for everyone's voice in this classroom. Yeah. And then we just, uh, we did an episode, episode 19, where we talked about some of the important teacher qualities. And those quality, the qualities of the warm demander, um, having teacher credibility, uh, being an autonomy supportive uh, teacher, those things lend itself towards an environment where there's identity safety. Yeah. Right? Where, where students feel related to, they feel supported, they feel challenged, right? That, um, you know, uh, the teacher is pushing all of their students to perform mm -hmm. they don't have you know lesser expectations for this one yeah um, favorites or that sort of thing yeah so there are things that we can do you know and if and if you know i encourage you to go out there and read more uh whistling vivaldi by claude Steele is a a, a good read um watch dave Chappelle's 846 oh just, it's watch just it. kind of vital right now especially yeah. before we head into the classroom in fall i know this is coming out like you know we're recording this and it's going to come out in like three weeks whatever so it'll be like a month old but it's uh, if you haven't watched it by now yep. i encourage you to watch it all right oh you got some beauty for us we do we're going to close out the show with a little well, bit of beauty we need some yeah all right the beauty of it all by matt jones uh, I call this one the new gadflies. Hmm. For someone that grew up idolizing Steve Martin and Bill Murray, I've never been seen as a funny guy. Don't get me wrong. I love humor and believe a mediocre stand-up comedian is stuffed in a locked closet in the corner of my soul. But I've always carried myself more seriously. My critical gaze and large stature create an air of intimidation that betrays my true affable nature. Idle chit chat and small talk have always bored me to death. I prefer, I prefer serene silence over empty blather. I avoid social media like the plague, knowing that to get to the meaningful benefit it can deliver would mean wading through piles of silliness. Life is short and life is serious. 
and our current times are reminding us of that. While I treasure comedy as one of life's great arts and elixirs, have we become too drunk on it at the expense of our ability to philosophize? I don't think so. I am encouraged by the young people that have tackled recent issues like gun violence and racial injustice. There is a new generation of gadflies rising up that are learning to use the tools of the times to communicate and amplify their messages and ask their questions. While humor will always be there to soothe our soul and provide critical satire, a new age of critical thinkers are finding their voices, challenging the status quo, just as Socrates did over 2,000 years ago. And that's the beauty of it all. Oh, that was a good one. Interesting. I didn't know where you were going with that. I didn't either until I started writing. Yeah, that's why we love writing. Yeah. Yep. All right. I have faith in the youth. Yes. They're going to show us the way. (laughs) They already are. Beauty of it all.